Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to episode 425 uh, with my guest, the late Jen Golick. Um, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This here is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, I'm not a mental health professional. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, it's more like a like a waiting room that doesn't suck. I'm, I'm not a doctor. I normally do that in a different order. Right now, my head is kind of uh, like a big bowl of spaghetti. I've been really, you know, last week's episode was remembering Brody Stevens. And um, this week's episode was actually scheduled before that. um, But I really wanted to honor Brody's memory uh, last week by airing that episode. So I'm sorry if I'm I'm bumming you guys out by two with two episodes in a row. But um, this episode with Jen is... I think is really, really uh, important uh, because it's an issue in our country that's rarely discussed. Um, and she was uh, really such a, a great person and did so much good and had a lot of really interesting stuff to share in her interview. Um, this is the first time this interview has has aired, and I'll explain more uh, about that. Um, at the beginning of the interview, uh, I had my friend uh, Sarah Goodson come in for about five minutes and help me kind of introduce the interview uh, with with Jen. Um, because she she knew her, she had introduced me to Jen, and I let Sarah kind of explain everything that happened and how Jen died, and you know, describe kind of uh, all the backstory that I think will make this uh, interview with with Jen um, all the more all the more powerful. Um, some really interesting surveys on today's episode. Uh, 
there was a lot of times themes reveal themselves in the surveys that I look at, and that always makes me kind of happy. Um, especially the theme that revealed itself for this week's surveys, uh, which is asking for help, being vulnerable, communicating feelings. And for many people, myself included, it was a pivotal moment in my life. And I get so excited when I read a survey where somebody gets out of their comfort zone and speaks their truth and and it's met with a connection that reaffirms that there is love in the universe and there are people not only capable of helping us but willing to help us or at the very least just comfort us in in that moment um my brain i i don't i don't i'm not sure why i have been um well of course why i've been sad <laughs> the last couple of days you know Brody died two weeks ago editing this episode with Jen. Um, of course, you know, the documentaries that I often watch, super upbeat. The one, uh, Leaving Neverland, about Michael Jackson and the monstrous things that, that he did. Hearing his voice talk like a child to a child that he was grooming and abusing is one of the creepiest things that I have ever, ever heard. Um, and then I watched the six-part documentary uh, called Surviving R. Kelly, which was, of course, just as... I think one of the things that really bummed me out ab- uh, about these two documentaries is the trap that these two laid is celebrity and there's such a culture of celebrity worship celebrities are kind of like our version of the royal family and seeing how blinded parents were to protecting their kids um in the pursuit of wanting to be close to celebrity um just reaffirmed in me how there is still that sickness in our society. You know, that materialism, I think, are really two of the most insidious things that we are battling and trying to become a, a healthier society. And I think it affects everything. I think it's, it's at the heart of the emptiness that so many of us feel because we're just pursuing this myth that if we can get more attention, you know, and not attention like in going and asking for help and being vulnerable, but like attention as in, you know, I'm trying to impress people. You know, the belief that that is going to bring us peace or somehow fulfill us or that being becoming wealthy enough um, is somehow going to fill us. It, it's and, I, and maybe one of the reasons it makes me sad is because I went down that path for so many years and I had to become suicidal to realize something was wrong and to finally ask for for help. So I don't know. But what was nice was going to my girlfriend 
and saying I'm sad and, um, and just being vulnerable and letting her love me, letting her comfort me, um, laying in bed and, and her cat Pablo coming and resting his chin, uh, between both of our heads and just listening to him purr and just not even saying anything. You know, I I love that she doesn't try to fix me. She just listens. And, you know, it didn't erase the sadness that I've been feeling, but it took the edge off it. And I've gone through bouts of depression for enough years to know that sometimes the only option is to just ride it out and that's kind of where that's kind of where I'm at i want to read a survey this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself devoid of personality um and she writes a few years ago i was going through a bad breakup with a colleague due to the isolating nature of my job my colleagues and i were each other's primary source of friendship and support My ex was the more charismatic partner. He'd sometimes remark that I had, quote, no personality. Sounds like a terrific guy. And I feared that he would take all of the friends in the breakup, leaving me completely alone. One day, I was particularly down, and he did something so out of character for me. I walked down the hall to a colleague's office and said, "Uh, Hi, I don't know if you're around tonight, but I'm having a pretty bad day and could use a smile. Are you or your wife free for dinner after work? He looked at me with a kind smile and said we'd be honored. Rather than making me feel as if I'd burdened him with my sadness, he made me feel as if I'd gifted him an opportunity to demonstrate kindness. At dinner, I got the smiles I was after. He asked at one point if I wanted to discuss what was bothering me. He made it clear that he was happy to just discuss or avoid the topic as I preferred. Just the breakup, I'd replied. I don't really want to discuss much. I didn't want a bad mouth or vent about a colleague that he, too, had to work with. He dropped it after letting me know that I could talk about it later if I ever needed to. Even now, years later, I am so touched by my friend's kindness and his ability to spin a happy moment out of a time that was so sad. Like many people, I'm not very good at asking for help. Even asking on the... Even asking on that seemingly small level, going out to dinner, felt overwhelmingly hard when my mind was telling me that I'd be asking too much. Who would want to spend an evening with someone devoid of personality and wallowing in sadness? A friend, that's who. A friend for whom I'm profoundly grateful. That just fires me up. That is so awesome. And what what bravery to go do that. I have trouble asking, you know, somebody to, you know, come help me move a bench in the in the backyard. Um I I can't uh I shouldn't say I can't imagine doing that because I have done that, but even now, you know, almost two full decades into recovery and therapy and all support groups it's still hard for me to ask people to help me. Our sponsor uh, for today is BetterHelp. Uh, BetterHelp is a platform for online counseling. I love it. I've been doing it. Uh, my counselor, Donna, is 
so great. Uh, she's, she's helping me uh, focus on things that I haven't really thought about lately. Um, being more spontaneous. Um, not shaming myself for maybe eating too much sugar one night and just more so being aware of things without condemning, uh, areas of my life that I want to work on. Um, so if you've never tried online therapy, I'm a big fan of it. Um, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental so they know that uh, you're coming from this podcast. And just fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor uh, if they have someone that is a good fit for you. Uh, you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And you need to be over 18. And then uh, speaking of 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 asking for help, you know, uh, there, there, there are some that are beautiful and there are some that are awfulsome. And this is a kind of an awfulsome moment of asking for help. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself, I'm not stupid, you know. And she writes, my sister called me today to ask whether or not she should do the heroin and Xanax that she got from an old drug dealer because she's 12 weeks pregnant but needs to get into a detox program, so she has to test positive, but she saw the ultrasound and now knows it's a real thing and maybe will keep it because it's making her not want to use. Nobody's, Nobody's cool, cool and everyone's scared, scared. And, and we're just, just all, all in, in this, this together. <laughs> there was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I'm one out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm going to stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to help you one day. People are going to love you for that. It takes a lot of work. Heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with uh, Sarah Goodson, who introduced me to Jen Golick, and Sarah's a good friend I've known for years, her and her husband. Zach Goodson, who were joint guests on on the podcast, probably about two years ago, maybe something like that. Yeah, we've been on three times, me yeah. and then a two parter with Zach. Two parter, <laughs> that's right. Uh, oh, I forgot that was a two parter with yeah. Zach. Um, and you introduced me to Jen, um, and it coming up on March 9th was was when she died, and mm -hmm. I had recorded with her. I think like three weeks before that, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, and I wanted to have you on to share just a little bit about what, what Jen was like since, uh, you knew her a, a, a little bit and you introduced me to her. You have her program there from her I memorial. Do. From her celebration of life. Yeah. 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 Um, before we do that, um, maybe we should talk about what happened. Sure. Um, actually, let's back up and you uh, share how you met Jen. 
Yeah. Well, I, I met Jen, I was doing uh, marketing and business development for a treatment center that served teens with addiction and mental health challenges. And she was the clinical director for an adolescent program for boys up in the uh, Napa area. And so I heard her presenting at conferences and her presentation style. I remember the first time I saw her um, was funny and insightful. And there's just, there was an energy about her that I just thought, I want to be friends with this woman. She is awesome. And she was very popular. A lot of people wanted to connect with her and she wasn't your typical, um, kind of stuffy, stodgy presenter when it came to, um, our industry. There can be some very, um, like heavy, stoic not that stoicism is a bad thing but but she yeah. was just fun Over, overly academic yeah and she you know she had a half sleeve of tattoos that were just beautiful and she would wear her chuck taylor's from you know her presentation to her car and back she just um her energy was such that it was she was wicked smart and funny and people wanted to be around her yeah. yeah. I, I felt that energy re- recording mm-hmm. with her. I actually got a little bit, uh, I don't know, flummoxed, um, <laughs> because I, f- I felt, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, just like, oh, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be up to this be- because <laughs> she's, um, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to put into words, but every once in a while I'll get a guest where I'm not intimidated, but I want to please them. Mm. I don't want to look like an idiot. Mm. And I found myself, in fact, I shared with you that I put off listening to this episode mm. one because the sadness around what happened with her, but also because I was kind of in my head that I was, you know, not bringing my A game and, you know, all the bullshit that we, that we tell ourselves. Um, so go ahead. So, you know, Jen, she has these lifelong friends, you know, that, that spoke at her celebration of life. And, you know, I just feel so honored, you know, to be able to even be here at the introduction for this podcast that is so timely, you know, with the one year, um, memory, you know, coming up for her, for her, um, death. And for me, I feel so honored to have known her for those two years. Um, possibly like the best version of herself, you know, as an evolved, um, in process healing person herself. But, um, you know, where, where where are we going with this? What um, happened or how I knew her? Yeah. Any, any, maybe before what happened, any, mm-hmm. any memories that, that you have of, uh, your, your time. Yeah. Her. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, Zach would joke that she was my work wife because mm-hmm. I was traveling so much before our daughter was born. And, um, and so it, Jen was the speaker at conferences and she did a lot of marketing for the center that she was a part of. So once or twice a month, it'd be, Hey, we'll see you in Vegas, right? Okay. Let's do dinner on Friday night. Okay. We'll see you in Atlanta. Okay. Oh, we'll be in New Jersey or wherever it was, Seattle. And I was a recruiter for like her presentations. So anytime she was a speaker, I was in the lobby recruiting people. Like if you haven't heard Dr. Go, like you have to go. She's awesome. And, um, you know, knowing Jen the way I did, um, 
helping her. I actually was building her website out with her because she wanted to expand her speaking. She wanted to expand the services that she, you know, consulting services for centers. Um, she, you know, part of this podcast, how it even came up was her saying, Sarah, I really want to grow in this. Like, can you help me? I know you help people do this. And I said, you know what? I, you and I had, I think, recently talked, and I was like, I need to connect you to Paul. Would you come to L.A. for a podcast? She was like, absolutely. She was just floored. And so that's, you know, really how this podcast happened. And, um, yeah, just just her her sass, her snarkiness, her wit, you know, all of it, I, I feel, was very much even, you know, in this recording that everyone will get to hear, was so indicative of who she was who she is in the world. Yeah, she did not yeah. take her self too seriously, but she took her work seriously, yeah. which, uh, to me, those are my favorite people. Yeah. Um, and so then she transitioned into working with vets, mm-hmm. um, specifically post, uh, Gulf war vets, nine 11. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Post nine mm-hmm. 11 vets. And that was in Yountville, which mm-hmm. is kind of in the Napa area. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, um, that's what, which she and I talked about, uh, quite a bit in the, in the podcast, which you, people will hear shortly. Mm. Um, and so what, what happened? Well, first I think it's, you know, the arc of her life as I knew her in treatment world and as a clinician, you know, she, part of why she transitioned from her position as a clinical director for the teen boys center, um, and transitioned to working with vets was in part because she wanted to be closer to her daughter who just turned nine. Um, and a big part of her choice to work closer to her home and this all, I mean, working with vets, it all aligned for her, but it was, she wanted to be more available to her daughter. And, um, so that to me, I think, um, is a deeper part of the tragedy here. Um, and also this sort of cruel irony, you know, that this calling to work with vets and that was the very way that, you know, her life was ended. Um, it's like she was literally in service to the moment, you know, that she left this earth, you know, in her spirit. And so basically what happened was, and this is not 100% factual. This is based on articles I've read and conversations kind of with friends and family of hers, but she, um, was part of a discharge for a client of theirs, a veteran who I think was 36. I really haven't read that much about him. And uh, he was aggressive towards other clients, other veterans that were there. And, um, there was some behaviors that needed to be addressed. And I don't know what the timeline was between his discharge and him coming back with his weapons. Um, but it was a fairly short amount of time. And yeah, he walked into a, a staff going away party as I believe it was. And, again, as far as I understand, he basically said, these three people need to come with me. It was Jen, Jen, and another woman, I think Christine, Christina, and, and she was one of them. And there was a shootout with cops and, uh, you know, the people who left the party were, I guess, permitted to do so, but he had ammunition around his neck and semi-automatic rifle. Um, I think they found more in his car and, uh, it sounds like, you know, the, the death had happened relatively early in the day, but the bodies were discovered later on that night. Um, and you know, I, I hope you're editing this as appropriate. Um, you know, the, 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 there's a lot of 
That's just, that's just the facts. Um, I, I read in one article that she was able to call her husband, um, at some point and have some sort of correspondence with him. Um, I'm not sure what was shared. I can't imagine what was shared. Mm. Um, but yeah, but that's, that's what happened. And, sure. and I also want to thank, uh, her, her husband, Mark for, um, giving us the, the nod to air this because I didn't want to air. The last thing I wanted was for this to feel exploitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you were kind enough to forward a copy of the interview to him and he gave it his blessing. And, uh, if he's listening, I just want to, want to thank him. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you want to read something from, um, the, the memorial? Yes. Yes, actually. And this is, this is really giving just context to her life. And I, I feel really honoring, you know, who she is. And, you know, as I read this, um, you know, a snapshot for me, a mental snapshot was that her celebration of life was a total celebration. There were pillow forts, there were wood fire pizzas that the Napa, fa- um, Napa Valley fire department were, you know, grilling for everyone. Tupac was on the speakers. There was wine, there were cupcakes, there was, you know, all of her favorite foods. And it was at this beautiful winery of family friends of theirs overlooking, you know, part of the Valley. And, um, it really was, a celebration of her life and also in the way that only Jen could be, uh, you know, some of the pictures of her, you know, it wasn't the professional Jen. It was, it was the real, you know, snarky, funny, you know, and sometimes very inappropriate Jen, (laughs) which was so beautiful. Um, but this, this is really just to capture her life. And this is just taken out of her program that I have here from her celebration of life. It's her obituary. So Jen known to her family and close friends as Jiffy was born January 12th, 1976 in Houston, Texas, and moved with her family to Calistoga at age one. She was a member of the Calistoga High School class of 94 and went on to earn her bachelor's in psychology from the University of California, Davis. She earned her master's in counseling psychology from Sonoma State University and her PhD in philosophy from Akume University in Hilo, Hawaii. She lived in St. Helena with her beloved daughter, McKenna, and husband, Mark. And Jen and Mark would have celebrated their 20th anniversary last summer. Uh... Jen's listening skills were legendary, and she maintained a clear-eyed belief that people could heal by being heard. Not only was she an incredible listener, but she was a talented public speaker, traveling the country and championing, championing, (laughs) being a champion for adolescent mental health. An enthusiastic runner, Jen delighted in races around the Bay Area. From CrossFit to Tough Mudders, she thrived when challenging herself. Her love for the San Francisco Giants was infectious, and she loved her pets fiercely, including her dogs, Floyd, Hambone, and Ripley. Um, so she joins her father, Randy Gray, on the other side of all of this. Um, but just, you know, beautiful friend, a beautiful mother, a fabulous clinician, a wonderful friend. And again, hearing, I feel so out of place being here, being her friend for a relatively short amount of time, although our friendship was incredibly deep and daily we were in communication, but she has a whole legacy of friends and family who have been with her since the beginning. 
and are supporting Mark and McKenna through this process too. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing all that, Sarah. And thank you for introducing uh, not only me, but the, the listeners to, to her. I'm here with Jen Golick, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. And uh, there's a couple of different things that you specialize in. Uh, you're a friend of uh, Sarah's, uh, who, who was a guest on the show, Sarah and, and Zach, who are good friends of mine. And she started telling me about some of the stuff that you uh, deal with as a clinician. And one of the things that really piqued my interest was she said that you work with vets Mm -hmm. and uh, obviously PTSD. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that and share some stuff that the average person uh, either has a myth about or doesn't know about yeah, I work for a program. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization based out of Yountville, which is Napa Valley. Uh, it's called the Pathway Home, and it is uh, a program for post 9-11 veterans who are having a difficult time reintegrating um, into society, particularly around school, because um, what we found is that a lot of veterans, when they come home and, and they've separated from service, going back to school is sort of the thing to do. Like, I'm just going to go back to school and, you know, find a new way, a new career and school can be really challenging once they get into it. And so part of the work that I do is, is helping these veterans to learn different coping skills and learn how to be more successful in their return to civilian life. And one of the things that drew me to it is that it's an early intervention model. So it's really to get in prior to the bottom dropping out, which is so much what the focus is around PTSD And I think a lot of the movies that have come out and a lot of the writing that goes on really focuses on, you know, the the 22 veteran suicides every day that happen. And there's a lot of focus on how the system has failed and how the VA fails veterans and how misunderstood they are. And so part of what I'm really passionate about is getting in early, trying to do something before the bottom drops out, because with any chronic relapsing condition, early intervention is key, except with mental health. We always wait until the bottom drops out. Preach. I know, right? And there is nothing that has as wide ranging ripples as mental health. Mm -hmm. It affects every area of our society, Mm -hmm. the family, businesses, crime, uh, you, you name it. Um, who we elect. Yeah. Well, I mean, we are a dynamic species. Mental health is a part of who we are, you know, whether it's good mental health or, or pathological mental health, you kind of can't escape mental health. If you're talking about humans, you really can't, you really can't. And if you think you can't, you know, attach mental health issues to people, um, you know, stick around. I've got a great denial course that I teach because we all struggle with it to a greater or lesser degree. Yeah. But the the thing with working with particularly post nine eleven veterans, and, and why do you specify uh, post nine eleven? That's the younger. It's our current conflict. So Operation gotcha. Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom. So it's the the veterans who are in our current conflict, who are still boots on the ground fighting the war that started with nine eleven. These are all young guys. I mean, they're they're young guys. A lot of them enlisted right out of high school. Um, you know, they went from mom's house to you know Uncle Sam's house, and so they they are they are raised up in military service, which provides a lot of structure and it provides community and it provides camaraderie. And 
provides a lot of other things that are not as positive, but by and large, it provides something for someone, something someone is looking for. And then when they separate from that service, here they are, you know, 25, 30 years old and struggling from an identity crisis along with some pretty significant PTSD symptomology and exposure and a lot of early childhood stuff that gets brought up or reignited along with that process. And so is that a pretty common thing when somebody experiences PTSD that it, uh, the, the old trauma kind of comes up and has a party with it? I think in my experience, yeah, I think it's difficult since there's no space time continuum in the human psyche that you can't really compartmentalize trauma. Um, I think that there's a larger sort of anecdotal discussion about resiliency, right? And what happens to one person? Why does it affect them the way that it does versus if it had happened to somebody else and trauma being completely subjective, right? Big T, little T trauma, it all shows up and... I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings about veterans and about PTSD. And I think people expect it to be this really like dramatic in your face presentation because so much of the media coverage around it looks like that, but having a flashback at Walmart. Exactly. Exactly. Having some sort of major public meltdown, but it's so subtle. It's so subtle. Talk about that. Give, give me some examples. Uh, of, you know, like like I said earlier, dispelling the myths and and kind of filling in the 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 voids of what we the non professional don't know or understand. Well, I think a lot of the the focus on PTSD is is again the the major exposure trauma, right? Uh, for those who have been deployed, who have seen combat. Um, infantry men and women, for example, the, the 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 common misconception is there's that, that flashback in the Walmart, and you know that they're booby trapping their homes, and you know that they're you know constantly surveying for danger. And yes, those things are all true, and those things all affect veterans, not just of this current conflict, but any war essentially exposure that you have. But there's more subtle presentations of of anxiety or of uh, depression or of that quick fuse, like quick to anger, um, hypervigilance, hypervigilance, not trusting people's motives, mm-hmm. um, difficulty with intimacy. Yes. Oh, and difficulty with intimacy is a big one. Both romantic and platonic. Exactly. Exactly. Because not trusting that people's motives are pure, not understanding if there's an agenda going on. Because all of those things of being hypervigilant, being aware, being suspicious, all kept them alive, right? But they don't really translate out to civilian life. Um, and the other thing, too, is in the service, in the military, it's, it's others above self, right? It's others above self, and that's how you survive, is you take care of the people that you're with. But in civilian life, it's self above others, unfortunately. And, and so that's a difficult thing to kind of wrap your mind around where you go from this others above self, you know, we're looking out for each other. We've got each other's back no matter what to returning home. And it's like, well, it's business as usual. You know, I got to get mine. I got to take care of myself. And it's a, it's a totally different dynamic. And I think that that then impacts this idea around trust or people's motives and suspicion and, and then the culture of don't ask for help, the culture of don't ask, don't tell Hold that thought for one second. We'll come, we'll we'll come back to the uh, uh, don't ask for help. Talk about the difference between healthy caring for self and the unhealthy preoccupation with self. 
in terms of like narcissistic unhealthy preoccupation with self or yes because you know one of the things that that uh a lot of people struggle with is they don't know how to care for themselves um or there's an unhealthy worrying about other people Mm -hmm. and to me there's good selfish and there's bad selfish right can you talk about the difference between good selfish and bad selfish and and some examples of yeah i mean i think ultimately it always boils down to intention really what is the intention of the self and and the prioritizing of self i think healthy self-care healthy prioritization of self is done with the intention of keeping oneself moving in a positive direction not at the expense of others Mm -hmm. it might not be always embraced by others but the intention is always good right versus this unhealthy preoccupation of self which is the intention is i want to get what's mine i'm going to put myself first at the expense of others it's not always conscious, but that's ultimately what ends up happening, right? So we hear of narcissistic individuals, for example, who cause a lot of harm in their relationships because they put themselves first at the expense of the people that they're with versus someone who's trying to have healthy boundaries or healthy self-care of you know turning down an invitation to go do something or saying no because they know it's ultimately not going to be healthy for them the intentions are different. And so I always encourage people to just focus on what is, what's the motive, what's the intention. And that's how you can start to separate out the healthy from the pathological. Uh, Going back to the uh, stigma around asking for help with, with vets. That's really a tough hill to climb. It's um, unfortunately, I think that's what also contributes to the lack of awareness and resources about why early intervention would actually be helpful because literally the way that the VA is set up, you, you have to be at the end of your tether for things to really be put in motion. I mean, there's, they're trying to change that, but it's a, it's a big giant system that is full of big giant complications that make change slow to happen. Do you, do you think also the, uh, kind of, stereotyping of what it is to be a man in the military so that you can survive or or a strong woman in the military works against then the asking for help and believing that that's counter to uh being a quote-unquote soldier oh absolutely and and it's not covert at all it's overt yes it's overt and um there's a lot of um, stigma about asking for help of what it says about your manliness about what it says about you as a soldier about what it says about you you know as a marine or as an infantryman or whatever it is whatever branch you are in there is a ton of stigma around that and for women as well female soldiers Yes, I think it, it's it's different. It's dynamically different with women, but I do think that that the vast majority of the culture is, you know, we keep it in house. We don't talk about it. You know, you know, suck it up, Buttercup, and you know, you just deal with it. You know, you you bite down and you and you deal with it. And I think that that works sort of to a point. But the things that people are having to bite down on and deal with are bigger than they are. And what happens is people try really hard, sheer force of will, white knuckle, whatever you want to call it, to, to get through and to just survive. And then we exhaust that resource. 
and then the bottom drops out and substance abuse comes in and suicidality comes in and domestic violence comes in and failure to thrive comes in and failure to reintegrate and paranoia, isolation, you know, anxiety, depression, all of these things come compounding in and then everybody's up in arms about, oh my God, this is terrible and it's an epidemic and it's horrible and it's yes. And all of these things probably could have been, if not prevented, mitigated had yeah. we had we known had people known to be able to get in and intervene early but we're fighting against a culture that says don't ask for help and 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 you're weak if you do and and we're also having to say uh, you know the help that we're going to give you is going to help you help yourself it's not like i can give you this thing that you can take or apply to yourself that's going to fix it it's a lot of like you got to fix yourself and it's a slow going process and it can be really frustrating because it's not a quick fix. Like, you know, alcohol and drugs are a quick fix, but they come with their own set of consequences. And so it's, it's hard, right? Just trying to get healthy is hard. We're not sort of designed for that as humans in general. And so then put someone into a really traumatic, you know, terrifying life threatening experience where hypervigilance and paranoia and suspicion and, all of those things kept them alive and then bring them home and say, okay, you know, just go back to being an average everyday Joe doesn't work. So give me, uh, and the listeners, some examples that you think kind of highlight, um, the, the crisis that we're experiencing, um, actual, obviously you're not going to share their names, but, um, share, share some kind of snapshots, um, of people's lives have moved you or um, you think are kind of emblematic of a crisis? Wow, that's a, that's broad. There's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of people, um, so many people that have been impacted. And I mean, I, I look at these sort of higher profile cases. Um, Noah Galloway, for example, um, who uh, was a sergeant in the army and uh, lost his arm and leg due to IED and, you know, has went, gone through a whole process with anxiety and depression and alcoholism and had, you know, found meaning in his life and turned it around. He was on dancing with the stars and he does tough mutters and Spartan races. And, and he's an advocate for, you know, finding meaning in one's life. And, I look at cases like that and in terms of like, how can we make that the norm as opposed to looking at, you know, the horror cases where someone is suffering and really struggling uh, to be able to find meaning or to find purpose in their life. And they just fall down this black rabbit hole. But the guys that I work with are, um, they're all younger than me, <laughs> which it's fascinating to me that, that what they've experienced at, at, at the age that they are, uh, you know, like 25 and, and having to go through a tremendous amount of stress and responsibility of, of being like, okay, you have to defend your nation now, you 24-year-old. I mean, I couldn't have defended myself at 24, much less in entire country. But the things that these guys struggle with in terms of how, how do you go back to a normal life if your life was normal to begin with? Right. Because a lot of the guys that, that I work with, you know, had some struggles personally before they enlisted that they were able to maybe put on hold for a while. But then through the experience of, of being in a war, have gotten exacerbated or been made worse and relationship issues or attachment issues. And 
So to help them try to navigate that while still having to fight against the mistrust of civilians, like why, what's your motive for helping me? Like I get asked that a lot, like, why are you helping me? And you know, why, why are you doing this? And not like, Oh, why are you doing this? That's so nice. It's like, why are you doing this? And what's in it for you? (laughs) And it's like, and I have to, you know, explain to them that this is how I can be of service, right? Because I can't serve our country in the same way that they did. I'm not military material. I probably wouldn't have made it through boot camp. So I recognize there are certain limitations that I have that don't make me set out for military service, but I'm a pretty decent therapist and I'm a pretty like compassionate and empathic person. And if that's how I can be of service, then that's my, that's my way of giving back, right? Like that's how I contribute. But I have to remind them of that because they, they don't necessarily trust it. Um, they don't know, am I there because it's like, the politically correct thing to do and I'm doing it for, you know, the photo op or whatever. And I, and I asked them, you know, look at how people show up every day, right? Cause integrity is when word and deed match up and mm-hmm. is doing the right thing when no one is looking. And, right. and so I just encourage them not only looking at the helpers that are in their immediate life, which is myself and the clinical team, but, but other people in their lives and, and look at the word and deed. And sometimes the story that we tell ourselves about people is not accurate. I mean, especially if it's filtered through trauma, exactly. And difficult childhood. Exactly. And- the filters are, are thick, right? For most of us on, on a good day, then add in the trauma of war. Uh, it makes it really challenging. And then this is not like a broad stroke over all veterans. It's just the subset of veterans that I work with who are in residential treatment. So I have a bit of a subset that I'm working with. But a lot of the stuff that they are struggling with is just magnified versions of what a lot of other people struggle with. And when you say residential treatment, do you mean for drug and alcohol or? No, it's a mental health program. Okay. So it's, it's considered a mental health program. It's a year long residential program where they get wraparound services and case management and, you know, they get help with academic or vocational reentry and to try to help them re-enter society. Give us us an example of uh, a success. So one of our about to be graduates um, came to us a year ago, almost a year ago and was completely isolated, um, was not functioning well. He, you know, was basically holed up in his apartment with, you know, weapons and, was, you know, booby trapping and had tried to work in security, which a lot of military personnel, when they just, when they separate from service, they go into police or uh, security work mm-hmm. uh, because it seems like kind of a natural fit for this gentleman in particular. It wasn't a great fit. It triggered a lot of his PTSD symptomology. And so he came into treatment basically having been completely isolated for a number of years And so part of his work in treatment was just learning how to build relationships with people, learning how to trust relationships with people, learning how to challenge his cognitive distortions. Um, Is there a moment when you remember seeing the light come on in his eyes? I've seen it come on a couple of times. The challenge is that when when you've got some ingrained ways of thinking about things, the light goes on and off (laughs) Uh, and, and that's okay. Right. It's the light goes on and off. And the nice thing is, is seeing the duration of time that the light stays on is it gets progressively longer. 
and the time that the light is off gets progressively shorter. It doesn't mean the light doesn't go off and that he doesn't fall back into really self-destructive negative patterns of thinking and behavior. It just means that he has a pattern or a time period of health or success and managing those symptoms that, that is increasingly longer over time. Mm -hmm. And because I think a lot of people look at treatment as like, you're going to go to treatment and then you're going to be all better. <laughs> and you're going to be all fixed. And it's really not about that. It's about learning how to keep the flare-ups of the symptoms um, shorter and to keep the time in between those flare-ups longer and to know what your triggers are, to know uh, what to do when you get triggered. And, and so it's all about kind of self-mapping. It's so similar to addiction. Yes, yes. It's very similar to addiction in a lot of ways. I mean, because it's, you're addicted to your thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Because the problem isn't the substance. It's the reason we're running to the substance. Exactly. And, and part of the work is to recognize when we externalize our coping, right? Whether it's drugs or alcohol, whether it's sex or porn or shopping or, or whether it's isolation. And, and that's the biggest symptom that I see is this retreat and making the world, making their world so exceptionally small because they have control over it. And if I have control over this world, then nothing bad can happen. And one of the big things that I work with them on is like, look, you can't make your world so small that nothing bad is going to happen because even inside your tiny world, something bad can and probably will happen. And so part of it, it's like, okay, we can't prepare for every horrible thing. We have to develop some resiliency. We have to develop some skills and some tools to be able to manage life when it happens to meet life on life's terms. You don't have to be happy about it. You know, nobody's always happy about life on life's terms, but if we have tools to be able to, to manage it, then we can feel like we have a little bit more sense of agency in our lives and, and we're slightly less powerless over it. Uh, talk if you can about spirituality in helping people trust. And I don't, necessarily mean religious spirituality but you know you touched before on meaning and purpose to me which is one of the greatest forms of of spirituality um working towards um something greater than just our own pleasure or uh aggrandizement um can you elaborate uh on that or is that is that something that you you see am I, is this something that it's i'm just kind of making up no i think you're i think you're right i think it's it goes back to the culture of others above self but it's broader than that right it's i think it's about finding one's place in, in the fabric of the universe and recognizing that you're not the one knitting the fabric i think is is a tough um a tough place to get to, uh, because we tend to think of ourselves as, you know, omnipotent and, and in control of all kinds of things. And especially those who are struggling with anxiety, um, and PTSD, it's, I need to be in control mm -hmm. of things in order to survive and, and to have a spiritual framework requires one to relinquish some control. And, and that's tough, right? It's tough to, to, you know, relinquish control, at least of the belief that you can control everything. And, and so I think spirituality is a huge part of that. And, and being of service is part of what we try to work with our veterans on of being of service in a way that like they're giving back 
um, or that they're part of other groups that are giving back just to be a part of something because mm -hmm. camaraderie and, and community is really important. And, and that's one of the ways that you can cultivate camaraderie and community is being a part of a group of people, even if it's a small mm -hmm. group of people that are trying to leave the world a little bit better than they found it. Mm -hmm. um, but and then just going to a larger, broader spiritual belief that of your kind of spot, like I said, there's spot in the fabric and, and recognizing that we're all connected to a greater or lesser degree and that there is something bigger than us, whatever it is, whether you believe in God or the, Yahweh the or Buddha or the energy of love or the universe at large. Like for me, it's the universe at large. Like I do not make the sun rise and set. I do not make the tides move. I do not make the trees grow. That's humbling for me. That's spirituality for me is to have the recognition that there is something way bigger than myself. And there's some relief in that, right? I don't have to control everything. And, but again, that's, a, that's, um, it's freeing it's, once you surrender to it yes. because you can turn off part of your brain. Yes. But the surrender is, is, is the leap of faith, right? Yes. The, the surrender is the leap of faith. And I always use this metaphor. Anybody who spends any kind of time with me knows that I'm like a metaphor junkie. Mm -hmm. It's my, it's my love language yes. <laughs> to speak it is, in metaphors. It is, for, it is for me too. <laughs> I yes. love it. And, and so I always use this analogy of the, um, the Indiana Jones, last crusade right when he's like going to find the holy grail and he gets to this impasse and he has to take this leap of faith right mm -hmm. and and he has to essentially step off the cliff into the abyss and i think there's some like quote about having to have faith or something and then he throws the rocks out and he sees that there's a path there it was you know all along but it's taking that initial first step into the breach, into the leap of faith that is so hard. And, and that's the surrender, right? Of surrendering to that is a leap of faith. And in order to take the leap of faith, you got to cultivate some faith first. And so a lot of times we expect people to just take the leap of faith. It's like, wait, we're putting the cart in front of the horse. Like we got to actually find what it is that we have faith in, whether it's humanity at large or the universe at large or some sort of organized religion or mm -hmm. whatever it is, we got to have some faith that it exists at all before we can take the step off the cliff. It, is it fair to say that experiencing um, the positive energy of human connection facilitates the willingness to take that leap of faith? I think it helps it because you're not alone in it. Um, I think human connection is, is pretty much like the center of everything when it, you know, it all boils back to attachment, but it all boils back to connection. We are a social species. We don't do well in isolation in general. Uh, we end up there through our own, you know, because we have a highly evolved brain and we can get ourselves into a lot of trouble. We find ourselves in isolation, but really we are a social species. We need connections. We need healthy connections, uh, which are not always easy to come by. No, a lot of times it's trial and error, finding out what you won't tolerate in right. a relationship. Right, exactly. And and learning as you grow what worked for you uh, in your childhood, what you had to do to survive your childhood is not what you have to do to survive your adulthood. And so we got to do a little bit of reprogramming. And what you had to do to survive, you know, a major trauma, an extended major trauma, like being in a war, that's not something, I mean, that lasts for years for some people. And you live in this hyper vigilant existence for years and, and you have different kinds of human connections. And so part of what we do, what we have to do is evolve 
our human connections and evolve the kind of connections that we have and what we're doing with those connections and what purpose do they serve in our lives. And so it requires sort of maintenance, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like a one and done thing. We have to do the gym for the soul. Ah, yes. The gym for the soul. I like that. You'd be deadlifting in the gym of the soul forever. It, it wasn't until I experienced a fair amount of healing and acquiring of coping skills that I realized that trauma, addiction, whatever it is, if, if, if we work towards finding a way to manage it and connect to other people, it's, it's a, what we had experienced in the past it was a forced gym membership for the soul. But we then have those muscles that we had to develop just to survive to bring to traffic, work, relationships. And so there can be a gratitude once we see the fruits of all that work we put in just to not kill ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, That to me, that is where it became easier to take the little leaps of faith every day because I got that positive feedback of, oh my God, I... I'm not struggling to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to see this, seeing this group of people as opposed to numbing myself all day long, feeling dread about everything except getting high and taking a nap, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is, uh, for me, putting the crystal ball away is such a huge tool. And I suppose that's a part of surrendering to the fabric of the universe that's mm-hmm. saying, I don't know how it's expanding mm-hmm. every day. And it would be ridiculous for me to try. So why don't I just try something outside my comfort zone that I'm told is healthy mm-hmm. and good for me? Uh, in my experience, help never comes in the form I expect it to come in. But if I'm willing to be open to what healthy people suggest, uh, it it comes and I'm glad that I put my crystal ball away for, for a minute mm-hmm. and trusted somebody else because I saw their lives working. Yeah, I think that that's a huge part of it. It's difficult to take a leap of faith by yourself. You need other people who have walked that path before you to convince you that you're not going to plummet into the abyss if you do. Um, and you need examples, right? You need fellowship. I mean, that's why recovery works in a fellowship, whatever fellowship it is you subscribe to. That's why it works in a fellowship because you're a part of something. You're a part of a group of people who are all trying to do something. And there are people who have done it successfully, who can show you the way and you can trust that that way will work for you. Um, and when you hear your story or something similar to your story come out of someone else's mouth, to me, that is, you know, worth two years of therapy in, oh, in yeah. that moment. Oh, of course, because it's that whole thing of I'm, I'm terminally unique, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody has a story like mine. And in all my years of being a therapist and, and frankly, of just being upright on the planet, we're actually all pretty similar. We have different degrees of similarity, but there is somebody else out there who has been through something like what you have been through. There's no exact replica of your story, but if you can hear somebody who has been through something similar, sometimes eerily similar, (laughs) if you can, then you can say, wow, I thought I was the only one. It's nice to know there's at least one other person out there who can relate to what that's Mm -hmm. like. 
And, and it's that relatability. It's that making that connection that then ha- can help facilitate taking that leap of faith, because then you can trust that this person that's encouraging you to do that and is trying to help you help yourself is not, you know, full of shit and just trying to watch you jump off the ledge for kicks, you know? And especially when that person, you see the light on in their eyes and you want that. It's, it's, uh, you know, what we, we call in recovery, um, the gift of desperation, uh, to surrender to seeing somebody who has the feelings that you want and because you're so desperate uh you're willing to do what they suggest because it worked for them uh that to me is like one of the most powerful um decisions i ever made and but it's hard mm-hmm. when we're wounded. And like you were saying, we have attachment issues and there's a comfort in isolating because we know what we're going to get. Well, there's a comfort in discomfort, right? There's a familiarity in discomfort, right? I can do discomfort. Yes. I know how to do discomfort. I don't know how to do comfort. And so when we encourage people to do the things that can bring comfort, that can provide healing that's almost worse in the beginning because you're having to re-experience being alive in a different way. And it can be really uncomfortable to not be in pain because that's what you know how to do. And, and sometimes we cultivate pain because we know it and we're familiar with it and we can do pain and dysfunction and chaos all day long. It's the being at peace. It's to be quiet. It's to allow things to feel good and, and to not second guess the good feeling it that that's the work and that's hard give uh, give some examples if you if you can of of that more specific like concrete uh, examples so one of the things that i i really work on with people um particularly with the vets that i work with is is cbt right change your thoughts that changes your cognitive feelings. Behavioral. Cognitive behavioral therapy. It's it works. It worked for me. I am a living example of that. It works, and um, I utilize it. It works really well with twelve step and mindfulness, and it's a nice sort of time honored way of of getting your shit together. And so, you know, for lack of a more clinical phrase. Um, and so, one of the things that that has always struck me can can you give a sp- specific example of an issue and the CBT solution? For yes, it? I can. Um, so, for example, nighttime is is hard for people with who are struggling, particularly with things in their mind, because everything's quiet and it's dark and there's not a lot of stimulation. So, nighttime is really hard, particularly with things around anxiety when stuff gets magnified. Right. So working with a gentleman who struggles with anxiety and he's ruminating on this something someone said earlier in the day and he's ruminating on it and ruminating on it and he's spinning it into this giant chaotic thing in his head and he's not sleeping and it's three in the morning and he just, ah, I don't know what to do. And, and so he calls me because <laughs> I'm the clinician on call and I get a call at two thirty in the morning and and he's he, he's just beside himself and and so i said okay you know here's what we're going to do right now we're going to do this one particular intervention and then we're going to circle back in the morning right because part of it it's like when he's like at an 11 like in spinal tap he's at an 11 
it's very hard to rationalize with someone when they're so limbically activated, right? Mm-hmm. Like their, their limbic system is on overdrive and the, it's the fight, fight or flight. Or flight. Yeah. Yes. And you're not, you're not going to have a rational frontal lobe conversation at that time. And so, you know, I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this thing. I want you to go to bed and I'm going to talk to you about it in the morning. And so, you know, as soon as we, I had, I let him look at a security tape, right? He wanted to, make sure that no one had gone in his room. Safety is a huge issue for him. And so he wanted to watch the security tapes of the hallway that looks at his bedroom just to confirm that no one had gone in his room. So he immediately felt better when he... Was he a vet? Yeah. This is one of the guys that I'm currently working with. And so he he looked at the security tapes. He confirmed nobody had gone in his room. He immediately felt better, Mm -hmm. went to sleep, circled back with me in the morning with a lot of shame around having called me, having wound himself up as hard as he did, And so we were talking about what could he have done differently and when could he have done it differently? Because one of his struggles is that he tries to do interventions on himself like mindfulness breathing and meditation walk and and do his CBT skills of, of really challenging the truth of the of the thought that he's telling himself. Like the what are the facts on the exactly, ground? Exactly, exactly. What is the proof that that verifies this thought that you're having? And he can't do it when he's super, super activated. And then he gets frustrated. And then he starts to mistrust us as clinicians because you're telling me this thing and it doesn't work. And so when we circled back the next day, I said, okay, so when you're at an 11, we should know that the thing isn't going to work. But what we're going to do is recognize when we're at a 10 or recognize when we're at a 50. And then we can employ these things when they're more likely to work. And just to watch the light go on, because it had been turned off, to watch the light go on and have him make the connection of how he could help himself just by changing how he was thinking or addressing the sort of ridiculousness of his thought before it talked him into the tree, into crisis, was really, it was validating because that's what it's all about, right? It's it's internalizing that skill so that you don't need the thing outside of yourself, whether it's a security tape or a phone call with your therapist or, you know, a bottle of booze or a joint or a cigarette or, you know, a one night stand, whatever it is that's outside of yourself that makes you feel better in that moment to be able to internalize that and have the ability to help yourself feel better is really empowering. And, And to watch him start to make those connections, they're hard connections for him to make. But when he makes those connections and then he realizes, oh, okay, the things that they're telling me are helpful. Okay. Yeah. This has helped me when I'm not as escalated. Mm -hmm. So he can start to kind of map himself. So what are some of the things he would tell himself to help? So he would, one of the things is is to look for the facts, right? Because anxiety is rooted in fear, right? And Mm -hmm. and fear is not always accurate. And so what's the facts, right? And so let's go back to the initial thing that this person had said to you. Right. And so this, one of his, you know, cohorts had made this really offhanded, completely innocuous apropos of nothing comment that he took as something totally out of context and, and had really like took it as a threatening comment. And then his anxiety kind of spun out. And and so we, we went and did sort of a forensic mapping of it and like, okay, he said this thing, what could you have done differently? What could you have said to yourself differently? And, and he said, well, I probably could have asked him what he meant. Mm. (laughs) 
Yeah, you probably could have done that. Well, what if I didn't believe him when he gave me an answer? I said, okay, well then you start to ask yourself, what's the proof that I can't believe him? Mm -hmm. What's the history that we have? Have I, have I had an experience of him being dishonest with me in the past? Just fact check it. Right. And if you keep coming up with more facts that go, you know, in direct opposition to your belief, then you can alter your belief. So it's like a court case. In yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to put your anxiety on trial because it's very convincing and it will convince you of just about anything. God, it is so similar to addiction. Yes. It's crazy. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, anxiety is at the root of a lot of people's yes, addiction issues, true. you know, and, and anxiety and depression and how we talk to ourselves and the things that we convince ourselves of and how it manifests itself, whether it manifests through drugs or alcohol or whether it manifests through isolation or however it manifests itself, it all goes back to what we're saying to ourselves. And a lot of what we say to ourselves and for this guy in particular is rooted in the things that we heard growing up, mm -hmm. right? We adopt the language that we learn and uh, we don't know any different growing up. So it's not until we kind of pause as adults and say, wait a second, what I'm saying to myself, is that my voice or is that my mother's voice or is that my father's voice or is that my, you know, the, bully, the bullies at school, the bullies at school, like whose voice is that exactly? And, and when we start to really listen in, a lot of what we're telling ourselves is not our own voice. It's somebody else's that we've adopted. Somebody projecting their own shame. Oftentimes. Yes. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's unbelievable how many times I've been interviewing a guest or I've read a survey that somebody has filled out on the website and they will describe the actions of their parent and then the things that their parent says to shame them and it's the exact thing that is the truth about the parent's actions mm -hmm. and it's like the parent is yelling at themselves mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's I was just having this conversation with with Sarah and Zach about it's hard to be a good parent. It's, it's a lot. I can't imagine. It's a lot easier to be a bad parent. Um, it's hard to be a good parent and, and it's hard to not, um, sort of replicate the sins of the father, so to speak, and, and to be able to do it differently and to, you know, hopefully change future generations. And, you know, what they read a study once that said it takes like four or five generations to like fully eradicate domestic violence and, you know, of it not happening. Wow. It takes a while. It's like turning around an aircraft carrier you got to go like two or three miles out of your way to actually turn it around. Change is hard. You know, we, we always default to our default and some of our defaults are pretty unhealthy. And even when we've done a lot of work on ourselves, even when we get to a place where we're pretty healthy and doing pretty well, it doesn't take much to trigger us into our defaults because the defaults are like a scratch in the record. Yeah. You know, it, it is knowing when we're, when we're triggered and we go back to that default that we're in it so that we can then use our skills around mindfulness, around CBT, around, you know, distress tolerance, around, you know, fact checking our own thinking, you know, that kind of thing that, that those skills that we learn, then we can employ when we get triggered. That's a skill that we are not born knowing how to do. Is it fair to say that, uh, when somebody, when you find yourself feeling agitated, that's an opportunity to self-reflect and mm -hmm. ask yourself what might be at work yes. here. Yeah. And do you know how hard that is to do? Oh, <laughs> when you get agitated, it's somebody else's issue, right? Like you right. did this to me, you made me agitated. So I'm mad at you or I'm mad at the, the grocery clerk or I'm mad at my boss or I'm mad at, or I'm agitated about the, you know, this thing at large. 
it's a lot easier to look out than it is to pause and say, okay, wait, what's this about with me? And, and especially if we've never done any inner work and found out what our traumas are, what our fears are, what our, uh, uh, catastrophizing thinking patterns are yeah but go ahead oh but it's like i mean i used to do this where i would get a bug in my bonnet uh, and i would call this one particular person up and i would basically pick a fight with her and i would do it not all the time but i started noticing it was a pattern that i would periodically call this person just to pick a fight with her and were you consciously picking a fight no, with her no i wasn't consciously picking a fight with her but it would end up that way and and i at one i remember i can visualize it in my head as i'm driving down this one street in my hometown when i finally said to myself why why am i calling her to pick a fight like what's that all about and so I, I paused for a second and thought, maybe maybe there's something I need to think about, right? Like, why does this keep happening? And and turns out that I would call to pick a fight with this person because I needed some reassurance that, you know, I was still important to them or I needed some reassurance that this person was um, going to engage with me. And instead of seeking out engagement in a healthy way, I would seek it out by picking a fight. And, Is it uh, because that's all you knew or that was familiar to you? No, I think it's because I'm not a conflict person. Like I don't, I'm just not like that. So it was weird that it would come up. And, and I think a lot of it was just around needing validation and, and not being able to ask for validation or acknowledgement in a healthy way of being like, Hey, am I still important to you without (laughs) Without saying, Hey, am I still important to you? Like here, (laughs) I'm super insecure. Will you please tell me I'm important and validate me? Thank you. I didn't know how to do that because I didn't know how to validate myself. Really. I didn't know how to be like, you know what? I'm actually okay. And I'm actually a pretty worthwhile person. And uh, that's hard to do. And so I would pick a fight and, and the person would get enough, you know, would then be like, why are you mad at me? And I would go, I'm mad at you because blah, blah, blah. And I'd come up with all these bogus reasons why I was mad at this person, which really was about me feeling insecure in the relationship and needing some validation that the relationship was still good and that we were still mm-hmm. connected. And, you know, so it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to fight with you so that you'll tell me you love me instead of finding a way to get you to tell me you love me and finding a way for me to be okay, even if you don't tell me you love me. And so it's, it's a process, right? But it took me a while and a lot of fights that I picked uh, before I kind of figured that out. And so now I know that when I feel myself itching to pick a fight with somebody, mm-hmm. particularly they're important to me, I know that there's something in me I'm feeling like I have a need that I need to meet for myself because picking the fight with that person is not going to meet the need. It's not going to fill the hole. It's not going to put, you know, help me feel less bad. One of the other things that you, um, have studied and, uh, you, you did your, uh, was it your dissertation? Yeah, my PhD dissertation. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know I was talking to a doctor. Yeah, well, PhD stands for piled higher and deeper, so I don't usually (laughs) tote it out very often. Um, You talk about parentification. You Mm -hmm. wrote about parentification, Mm -hmm. um, which can be kind of similar to uh, covert emotional incest, or, or no? Yes, it can. Um, there's there's two types of parentification, and this goes back to the 60s. Salvador Mnuchin wrote about um, parentification back then. 
Um, but it was more um, like situational parentification where kids were taking on like concrete tasks around the house, like paying bills or caring for their siblings or mm -hmm. cooking or working, you know. But then that evolved into this emotional parentification where children started being their parents' emotional caregivers. And that was what I really focused on because that's what I was seeing in my work, particularly with adolescent boys who were um, put in the position of having to meet their mother's emotional needs, um, sometimes meet their physical proximity needs. Um, I, I don't, I never experienced kids who were uh, experiencing physical or sexual abuse, but there was a lot of emotional enmeshment that I think is abusive uh, because it puts the parent's need over the child and it has the child filling the need of the parent. And so one of the things that I really wanted to look at was what happens when that happens. Before we go there, give a half dozen examples of ways that you have seen, uh, especially ones where you see uh, it happen again and again with, with um, a, a pattern that, that is common. So what I would see most often would be, um, this was particularly true of divorced families, but I saw it in intact families a lot of times when dad would travel a lot for work, when dad was not around much, um, that mom would um, use her son as a source of comfort, right? And, and there would be a breakdown of boundaries about details, personal life details, or uh, there would be this, like basically mom would treat her son like a confidant. And, or a therapist or a therapist or, or, or best girlfriend or a spouse yeah and and there would be this sort of pouring out of of the heart about how she was feeling or things she was struggling with and to her you know teenage son who wasn't equipped to manage his own feelings much less be a container for the feelings of his mother and so I saw that a lot. I saw um, and, w and what are some examples of things that they would share that weren't appropriate? Um, a lot of times it was things about their dad, like talking about the marriage, talking about the marriage, talking about their relationship, uh, about things about, you know, their current dating life or, you know, feeling like, you know, he's my little man and, you know, I don't need anybody cause I have you and sort of put elevating the son into a, a that, position as a parent. That makes my skin crawl. Yeah. It, it's creepy. It's creepy. I, I watched it. I remember, I'll never forget this. I was a family visiting day. I ran an adolescent program, a residential program. And I remember this mother was, parents were divorced, totally acrimonious divorce. Mom was visiting that weekend and it was, she was in the hammock with her son who was like almost 18. And they were, it was like a beautiful spring day and they were out in the hammock and you'd think it's pretty innocuous to be in a hammock with your kid, right? I'm in the hammock with my kid all the time. Not a big deal. But her body language was so intimate and the way that she was leaning toward him and the way that she was in proximity to him, just observing from, you know, 30 feet away, it was looking like two people who had been intimate with one another. He wasn't reciprocating it, but the way that she was gesturing toward him had a degree of intimacy. Like that, you, when you see a couple together and, and they're intimate, you can tell. Yeah. It, it, I remember watching from the kitchen window and just being completely fascinated by the physical dynamics between that were coming at one directionally from mom to son. 
And, and I saw, had another kid that I was working with who, um, his mom, he, he like tickled her in front of me. It was, I was teaching a class and they were walking past me and he reached out and tickled her stomach. And she's like, he, 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 don't do that in front of Jennifer. And it had this kind of conspiratorial intimacy, flirty intimacy to it. And, and I can see it in my head clear as day. And this was years ago. And that was the thing that sparked me to want to study it more and, and to understand the impact that it has, because what, what we're seeing, what I was seeing at least was the boys that were parentified or spousified as it were, um, they were Mm co-parents. Um, I would see sort of two different responses from them. One would be the boys that would almost kind of assume the role as husband and that was their identity and they were on the level with their moms and they would basically kind of cohabitate almost as husband and wife um, in terms of decision making around the house and how they communicated with one another. And, and there was sort of an empowerment identity that would form around that. And then I would see the, these other boys that would be in a similar dynamic and they would be crippled in relationships. They couldn't function in relationships with their peers or with girls of their age. Um, it was like they had been so overwhelmed and so oversaturated by their mothers that they couldn't, they were just crippled. And, and it was fascinating to me to see, and again, there's no, there's no peer reviewed research on this. It's just what I saw with my own clinical eye. Uh, Give some, some ways in which they were crippled. And that they couldn't, they couldn't relate. Um, that they avoided relationships, um, that they didn't know how to navigate relationships. Um, that what, they, what aspects, for instance, um, listening to the, your partner share about their feelings or snuggling or oh, a combination. How, I mean, because again, we're looking at teenagers, right? So it right. wasn't it wasn't terribly complicated in how it manifested itself, but it was more of like you would see a boy who was you know sixteen or seventeen who did not want to have relationships, you know, did not want to be involved in intimate relationships, avoided them entirely. And, and that they couldn't tolerate emotional, their own emotional states because it was almost like they had been saturated. There wasn't any room left for them to have their own affect, much less be able to tolerate the affect of their teenage partner. Would they be able to, um, you know, have a one night stand or have a purely physical something where there were there would be no responsibility on them beyond just the sexual release in the moment. I don't know specifically about that, but based on what I had understood about their lives prior to coming to treatment, no. Okay. No. Versus the ones that were more adoptive of the role, they would. Okay. So, so there was more of a sexualization of the ones that were kind of stepping into took that. Took it on role. and yeah. f- found it to be uh, almost a compliment exactly. that they were trusted. And boy, does that ba- backfire on you later Certainly does. Uh, in, in life. Um, and, and the reason I ask is, is, you know, one of the things that I see all the time in my support groups and I have struggled with is um, being promiscuous or being completely shut down and sometimes going back and forth in between Mm -hmm. the two and not being able to a even know what i'm feeling and if i do finding the words to express it in a in a relationship and so just shutting down uh is is the only way to 
cope. Is that something that you, that you see? I think to an extent, yeah. I think part of it is that, and this was what was so fascinating about doing the research, was that most of the research on parentification or covert incest is all done on adults. So we see how it manifests in adulthood through character pathology or through addiction or through behavior pathology. There's not a lot of research on the etiology of it. There's not a lot of research about what it looks like as it's happening. Mm. And that was my big interest was, okay, how can we identify it when it's happening and do something about it, right? As a clinician, right? If you're seeing this happening, how can you intervene? How can you see the markers? What can you do to try to help the parent get resources to be able to get their needs met in a different way? How can you help these boys? Because I was looking at boys. How can you help these boys not feel like they have this responsibility mm. to to be the emotional caregivers for their parents without feeling guilty for not yes. doing it. There was an interview that I read with um, um, Ken Adams, who wrote the book Silently Seduced, mm-hmm. which obviously you're familiar with. And he was saying that when he originally started talking about this, and he coined the term covert incest, and when he started presenting um, his findings, among his peers, there were people sometimes that were angry at him and f- would say, this is preposterous. And he said one time he was lecturing or giving a presentation and a female clinician stood up and said, thank you for what you found. I'm putting my son in therapy tomorrow. And I'm like, that is a fucking hero. Mm-hmm. That woman is a hero to be able to in that moment put her recognize the truth and put her son's needs ahead of hers is such a great example to me that a great parent isn't somebody who doesn't make mistakes it's somebody who handles their mistakes in a way that puts their child's needs ahead of theirs. Oh, absolutely. And, and again, it's not, it's not like we, and I'm a parent, so I I can be part of the collective. We, it's not like we, we seek it out as a way to, to just really jack our kids up. Right. A lot of times we have an, we have a need and it's an unconscious need. And all we know is that when we do this thing, it feels better. Mm hmm. When I have this interaction, it feels better. And as a parent, when you know, as a mother, you have a connection to your child that's different from any other connection that you have in your life. Uh, whether you gave birth to that child or adopted that child or you know, or raising that child, the connection is different. It just is. And so it feels good to get love from your kids. It feels good. And if you have a void, if you have a hole that needs to be filled and it and it feels good when you get filled by the love of your kid if you're not aware of it you're going to try to cultivate go that yeah. you're going to cultivate why that why wouldn't you and your kid is going to feel good because look at all this attention i'm being paid and and it you know isn't this great and then it starts out as as this kind of innocuous thing and then it sometimes not all but sometimes it can it can turn insidious it can become really unhealthy it can become very confusing for the child who's not equipped to be able to understand the nuances of what's going on. And it can be very complicated for the parent because 
you don't recognize the impact that it's having immediately. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's not about shaming someone into being like, Oh my God, you're a terrible parent because you're emotionally enmeshed with your child. It's like, no, you, you're doing the best that you can with whatever resources you've been given. If you can have an awareness of, of what you're doing, you need to direct your needs elsewhere and, and don't direct your needs at your kid because your kid needs you to meet their needs. And so it's, it's not about shaming anybody. It's, and it's not done intentionally by and large. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's a subset of people who, you know, as with all child abuse, there's a subset of people who set out to do that. And then there are some people who don't even realize what they're doing is abusive. And, and, and I think a lot of this parentification and, and the covert incest, there is a, a swath of people who do it because they have bad intentions but then there's a wider swath of people who don't even realize what they're doing oftentimes until it's too late and their kids are adults and then they come to their own realization. And it's almost like we, we as parents have to always kind of keep ourselves in check about how are we getting our needs met Mm -hmm. because we have adult needs, emotional needs that our kids can't meet for us. Two of the ripples that, that I see a lot too is when you feel like you have to be the rock for that parent is your instincts will be screaming, this doesn't feel good, I feel drained, etc., and you will shut them down because you're, you have to consider the parent's need mm-hmm. ahead of yours. So as you grow older, you don't know what it is you're feeling because you've always told yourself you're being selfish thinking about this, or, or you're numb, mm-hmm. or you're just plain numb. And... uh it's it's really hard to recover from that, especially if you are engaging in behaviors that numb you um, because of uh, you're so miserable in your life or your your own skin. But you can, and I know I'm not telling you. And I'm always talking to a listener. I know I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. So I apologize if it, it seems like uh, you know I'm pontificating to you. Oh, not at all. It's okay. Great. Um, it it um now I just lost my train of thought. Um no, you I'm can not. you can regain your sense of um uh trusting your integrity, trusting your feelings, and they can be your guide to a much easier way of living. But it involves accepting some truths that are really fucking painful. Accepting the truth that you are in many ways an object to your parent mm-hmm. is one of the most painful things that you can do because the image of them that you had to create to not face the truth mm-hmm. dies in that moment. And it is excruciating. Mm-hmm. Of course. So it's like the, like the wizard of Oz, right? So the, yes. they pull the curtain and you, you see them for, for what, not what they are, but what they aren't. And That's such a great way of putting it. Yeah. It's, and it's hard to come to that realization as a kid. Right. And, and it's hard to, um, it's hard to be in a relationship as an adult, for example, if you are so used to being that rock, you're so used to having sort of marginalized your own feelings so that you can be the holder of the feelings for your parent. 
And then you get into a relationship with another adult and that's what you know how to do. And ta-da, welcome to codependency. Mm -hmm. And so now you find yourself in a similar relationship mm -hmm. and we gravitate towards homeostasis of what we know. And so now we find ourselves in adult relationships with people who we have to compartmentalize our feelings in order to maintain the relationship. And, and we wonder why there's not intimacy. Yes. And or we why wonder, it vanished after the excitement of the first three months. Exactly. And we wonder why we're so easily overwhelmed and why, you know, we have no threshold for tolerating our own affect, much less the affect of others, because you've basically, you know, used up your saturation point in childhood. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, here, here, this is how it all sort of manifests itself out. Well, Jen, thank you so much for uh, taking time out to come share all this stuff. It's been so um, enlightening. And um, I, I just want a tip of the hat to the mental health professionals like yourself who are truly in the trenches uh, every day. And uh, you're of such service to uh, to our society. Um in many ways to me is like the soldiers that, that, that go overseas. Um, it's, you make the world a better place. So thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad our paths got to, uh, got to cross. Um, and such important information, uh, that she shared about combat PTSD and just a variety of variety of stuff. Um, Today's episode is sponsored by the number one app to help you reduce your anxiety and stress, Calm. Great app. If you've never checked it out, more than 40 people, 40 people around the globe have tried it. More than 40. Yes. For, it's on fire. 40 people. 40 million people around the world have downloaded it. If you head to calm.com slash mental, you get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, and focus, including a brand new meditation each day. They also have sleep stories, which are really cool. They're essentially bedtime stories for adults, and boy, do they help you relax. Uh, you can listen to one that's read by Stephen Fry, uh, who has an amazing voice, and it's about southern france and lavender fields and five minutes into listening it i was uh, i was a noodle uh they also have soothing music a, a whole bunch of stuff so check it out uh, right now you guys get 25 percent off a calm premium subscription at calm.com slash mental that's c-a-l-m dot com slash mental get unlimited access to all of calm's content today at calm dot com slash mental get calm and stop stressing and i'll put the links as always to stuff that we mention on the podcast under the show notes for this episode this episode is also sponsored by madison reed uh let's be honest you deserve a gorgeous head of hair and gorgeous professional hair color can be delivered to your door for less than 25 bucks what Paul, how could that possibly be true? Yes. For decades, women have had two options for coloring their hair, outdated at-home color or the time and expense of a salon. But with Madison Reed, you can get gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. You can get 
gray covering, game-changing color, and you can do it at home and look as if you just came from the salon. And what makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous multi-tonal shades. The listeners that have checked this out have given me feedback, and it is lights out. They say the color quality is great, the smell is pleasant, it's convenient, and it's affordable. What more? What more could you ask? So find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. You guys get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with code M-I-H-H. That's code M-I-H-H at madison-reed.com. Something else, I I hate having to do this, but... um, the podcast needs financial support. Uh, advertising alone does does not cut it. And um, the monthly donor numbers are down and I'm getting a little panicky. And if you would consider becoming a monthly donor uh, via Patreon, that would be awesome. You can do it for as little as a dollar a month and it means the world to me. Uh, occasionally, I'll... Uh, give away bonus stuff or maybe a raffle for a cutting board that I made. Um, you know, occasionally raffle off like a hotel room at a podcasting festival, stuff like that. But, you know, for the most part, you're just plain old helping me out and, uh, and I could really use it. So I'll put the link up to it, but it's patreon.com slash mental pod. And, um, it, it, it would really help and I could really use it. This is a shame and secret survey and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself rain or shine, sex is still divine. He is straight in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, but he has been emotionally abused. Darkest thoughts. Sometimes when I have a conversation with someone older than me and usually someone well-established or, quote, successful, I think briefly, What would happen if I totally slapped this person? I would never ever do something like that ever, but my mind will create that thought. It's so fucked up. I also will sometimes think, what would it look like if this person were fucking someone else? It's such a fucked up thought that it sometimes makes me lose focus on a conversation. First of all, I can tell you, slapping successful people is euphoric. I do it at least once a day. I do it instead of going to the gym. Uh, what I'll do is I'll go to a uh, champagne brunch and I'll wear like a, uh, uh, just a, an undershirt, really tight fitting undershirt. And, uh, and I'll go right up by where the ex-Benedict are. And I'll just, usually I'll wait till somebody's laying a waffle on their plate because then they can't really defend themselves. And I'll just haul back. And I've actually knocked dentures out. And then I say, I'm sorry, I didn't see you there. And then I run out. So you have nothing to worry about. No, but uh, seriously, uh, those are such common thoughts. Oh, my God. That's, that's nothing compared to some of the things I've thought, you know, well, what would happen if I push that woman holding the baby in front of a bus or, and, and you know, that's just our brain 
farting and burping. It's has nothing to do with our morality. In fact, it's usually an anxious thought because it's the opposite of our morality. But sometimes rich people do need to be slapped. Uh, Darkest Secrets. I'm a 26-year-old straight black male. When I was 18, our family basically decided that we wanted to become a foster family for a beautiful baby girl. Her birth mother was in and out of gangs and completely dysfunctional. She was two years younger than me, uh, Caucasian with skinny glasses. Uh, and she, he's talking about the birth mother, not the, uh, not the baby. She had some tattoos and one of those white girls that were white on the outside and black on the inside. She was definitely someone that spent most of her life around the hood and streets. The first time that I met our baby sister's birth mother, she wrote me a love letter. She even gave it to my mom to give to me. One day after school, I got home and my mom said that I had a letter from, quote, Jane, I can't write her actual name, and that I should open it. I opened it and read it aloud. It basically said that Jane thought I was really handsome and how happy she was that I was in her life. My mom started laughing and thought that this was hilarious and absurd. At that moment, I agreed and was like, what the hell? Is this girl serious? It's almost like incest. Anyway, Jane sometimes would come to my school and take vocational classes. Every time uh, that I saw her, she would literally beg me to kiss and touch her. As a teenage male with raging hormones, I would still shove her off me and tell her that it wasn't right. But also, in the back of my mind, I thought she had a really nice body. My thoughts made me feel nervous, like I was doing something that I shouldn't do. However, one Friday, my mom dropped me and Jane off at our high school football game. I sat next to her in the bleachers, and out of nowhere, she grabbed my face and started making out with me. Without being able to control myself, I started to get hard, and she stuck her hand down my pants. I knew how completely fucked up this was, but literally could not stop myself from everything that was happening. I felt terrible, yet sexually pleased. I knew that if my mom were to find out about what happened, it would ruin everything. After that day, I saw her again at lunch in my high school. We snuck over to a stairwell and made out again. I felt so guilty and anxious about the shit I was doing. She would constantly grab my arm and tell me that she wanted to be my girlfriend. It finally got to the point where I said, no, this is so wrong and we can't do this. But yet any time that she could kiss me, I really wouldn't stop her. Man, if that's as dark as your secrets get, good on you. Good on you. Uh, you sound like a, a really, uh, just a really good guy. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I would absolutely love to be lying on a soft bed as a cute woman gives me head and another woman with big boobs and big nipples gives me a back massage. If I ever get to a point in my life where that happens, I think that I would actually go into shock from overwhelming sensation. Uh, have you shared these things with others? Yes, most of these things. But if I were to tell someone about the other secrets that I have, it could ruin my relationship with some of the people in my life. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like I just worked out. This takes a lot of emotional and mental effort to get everything out, typed and arranged in a decent manner, but it does make you feel lighter, LOL. Thank you so much, man. Thank you so much. Um... So what a great example of how complicated issues can be and how much gray area there is in things. Um, 
you know, I've talked about surveys on this episode of people uh, being vulnerable and asking for help. And this is an email I got from um, Mrs. Ali Lisa. And she writes, hello, dear. How are you? Did you get my last email? Please reply urgently. Thank you for understanding. A friend close to you, give me parcel to give to you. And I'm so touched that she would trust me enough to give this parcel to her friend. And, you know, I don't want to be nosy, but I'm dying to know what's in it. And so I, it's a duffel bag. And I just unzipped it a little bit. And it's, there's two like thick red sticks. They're like red cylinders. And they're attached to an alarm clock, like an old style alarm clock with a bell and a really, really curly cord attaching the two. I don't, I think it might be just a modern alarm clock. I'm not sure. But um, it's just really nice seeing seeing this person reach out and and be vulnerable. And um, I can't wait to meet her friend uh, at the airport and give it to her. This is a happy moment filled out by Dog Mom, and she writes. I've recently been in a string of short and codependent relationships, both romantic and friendship. I've recently cut ties with my old best friend because I realized how isolated she made me due to her jealousy and negativity. My boyfriend also recently broke up with me to focus on his undergrad, and he just couldn't focus on a girlfriend right now. I've been pretty lonely lately and trying to meet people, but nothing really has come about. This past Sunday, I took my dog to the dog park and was just walking around when I ran into the only other dog and their owners at the lake. Our dogs hit it off right away and instantly started chasing and playing. It was really nice. I started chatting with the couple and we actually had a lot in common, such as job stuff and our love of dogs. They invited me and my dog to go to this local brewery and have a beer. It was really nice. I'd always felt that in this day and age, people can't meet friends organically. We exchanged information and are hopefully going to hang out soon. It gave me hope in the future and affirmed my decision to cut out the toxic people in my life. Thank you so much for this. And what a great example of taking that leap of faith that we're not going to be completely alone forever if we distance ourselves from the people in our lives that drain us or consistently hurt our feelings or... um, you know, don't really take in, don't really see us and hear us and treat us with respect. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secrets survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself afraid. I love that. Just right to the point. No fucking around. Afraid. Um, I think the only way that could be more brief would be scared. She's straight in her 40s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, not sure if she's been physically or emotionally abused. Um, I would say definitely uh, she has been. And my husband was, uh, at the time, undiagnosed, clinically depressed, and it manifested as him just being an overall asshole all the time. 
One time, instead of just doing what he wanted, I refused, and he picked me up by the arms and put me against the wall. It was the most helpless and vulnerable and angry and ashamed I ever felt. It's been about six years, and I've never told anyone until now. Either it will blow up my kids' lives, or people will tell me I'm overreacting, and that will crush me. Um, I don't believe that... that Anyway, I'm 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 gonna hold back my opinion um on this for for a moment because I don't know what it's like to be married to somebody who is abusive and have kids to factor into the situation. But anybody that will tell you that you're overreacting, fuck them. I don't feeling physically threatened by the person who's supposed to um love you and um feel protective towards you is an important thing and feeling the opposite of that is a big deal um any positive experiences with the abusers i love him and he is generally a good man but i always have that fear that it will happen again so i hate him too he can be patient and kind and also arrogant and impatient and mean Darkest thoughts. Wishing nobody loved or needed me so I don't have to be alive anymore. Fantasizing about ways to die. Darkest secrets. The incident with my husband. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Sex with people outside my marriage or more than one person. Male, female, whatever. Sharing this anonymously is easy. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to be able to tell my husband how much damage he has done to me and us because I don't really think he gets it. And what I want to say is it doesn't matter whether or not he's going to get it. I think you should empower yourself by speaking your truth, and I think it would be great to do it in a neutral environment like with a marriage counselor. Um, so that you could get an objective opinion on the state of your marriage and the viability of uh, you two being able to grow in the right direction. Um, you know, something to consider is, yes, you don't want to blow up your kids' lives by your, you know, by potentially divorcing this person, but something to also consider is that your relationship with your husband is the template that your kids see for what marriage and partnership looks like. And that should be factored into how your relationship with him affects your your children. Again, I I've not been in your shoes. So, you know, I'm not saying do this or do this. I'm I'm just trying to give you some other factors to consider. And here's the most important factor. You deserve to feel safe. You know, you're an autonomous adult and you deserve to not feel cornered in your life. And you have the law, hopefully, on your side. And there are support networks for people out there who have abusive spouses and can help you sort through that complicated entanglement 
of through that ball of fuck. Let's call it that. Let's get technical. Um, what if anything do you wish for? To feel safe in my marriage or to be able to end it without destroying my children's lives. To be able to tell my loved ones and be believed and supported. Um, is it more destructive for your children to see a mother being browbeaten and disrespected every day? I don't know how he treats them, but I imagine he's probably not an emotionally sensitive, present father consistently with them. He doesn't sound like somebody who apologizes when he makes mistakes. And those those are really important things for people to see modeled. You know, if, if I I used to think that apologizing left me open for it to be used against me later. And so I covered up that fear with arrogance and coldness. And I really regret that because that affected that affected my marriage. That affected my relationship with other people. That affected everything. Um, to me, arrogance is really a form of fear. Uh, have you shared these things with others? No, I can't afford financially or emotionally a divorce. And how do you feel after writing these things down a little lighter? You know, a good place to start might just be going to a support group or talking to a therapist and just looking at what your options are. Because again, I'm not a mental health professional, but I once cooked flank steak for a romantic comedy on basic cable. And that's got to count for something. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself broken old. And she writes, I was talking to my mom the other day and she said, your kids are so smart and they're doing so well in life. That must be so wonderful. I wonder what that's like. That is fantastic. That is the definition of awfulsome. This is also an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself, Why Am I a Mess? And she writes, I should start this by saying that I still live at home with my mom. I was sitting in my room on a Saturday morning and felt an intense sadness come over me. I've been diagnosed with major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety. I've been dealing with my mental illness since I was 12 years old and just recently felt comfortable talking about my depression and anxiety with my mom. So when I felt this sadness come over me for no reason at all, I knew what was coming. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, my mom came into my room and asked if I was okay. I couldn't hold it back and just burst into tears. I babbled about being afraid of never accomplishing anything because of my depression and anxiety. I cried about wanting to do things but being too afraid to fail. She allowed me to cry on her shoulder. Once I was done crying, I felt better and extremely embarrassed by the outburst. I apologized and she stopped me and said she was happy I was opening up. She apologized for creating an environment where I didn't feel comfortable sharing these things with her in the past. She promised that she would do better in the future to help me with my illness. It made me feel good that I finally have support outside of my therapist. You know, when I read a survey like this, I, I just want to go do that thing like Rocky where he runs up the stairs 
and uh, and he's just pumping his fist in the air. Not only for you, but be, but for your mom, because it it's such a great example that people people are capable of change, and that it's worth trying, at least to express what we're feeling to that person. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of parents that wouldn't have owned up to their failure in the past. But you gave it a shot. And God bless your mom for being what a true parent is, which is putting their pride aside for a moment and putting their kids' needs first. Fires me up. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, James F. He is straight in his 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, Yes, and I never reported it. And also some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My mother, who was physically, verbally, and emotionally abused by my father, saw me as her golden son. I was born after a very bad stillbirth, and my mother saw me as the most important of her children. She was far less abusive than my father, but she was often sexual with me, playing it off as just her being a cool mom. She wanted me to sleep in the same bed as her till I was seven. She insisted that I hold her hand whenever I was in the same room as her. When I was nine, I was in underwear and came down the stairs because she was doing laundry and I wanted pants. She decided to tell me my penis was developing nicely. One day, when I came home from elementary school, she was blasting Ramble On by Led Zeppelin and pinned me to an armchair and danced on me until I pushed her off. Regularly, she would tongue-kiss me and call it our little joke. When I was in kindergarten, we had a circus day, and I was dressed as an old-timey strong man with burnt, burnt cork smudge mustache and a leopard print toga. Leaving school, the car door was jammed, and when I pulled it open, she called me her strong man. That night, my father beat her, and as she laid swaying on the lazy Susan, I came over, still dressed as a strong man, to help her to bed. She held me close. Don't worry. No Kimberly, the pink Power Ranger? When you go to bed, I dress up like her and kick your father's ass. Then she made me the promise that I would always love her. Then she made me promise that I would always love her the most out of anyone in my life. And at age six, I realized I was the adult in our relationship. Wow. He's also been physically and emotionally abused. My father was extremely abusive in every manner but sexual, though I do do believe he molested my younger sister. He often yelled at and hit me. I was ungrateful for protesting hard physical labor and gluttonous for eating three times a day. When I was 13, I was forced to spend nine hours building a beach for him. I moved 10,000 pounds of sand down a stretch of lawn. It was 90 degrees and the wheelbarrow tire was flat. When I was 15, the computer I was using crashed and I lost a large assignment. I stayed up late and around one in the morning I had something really close to done. Then he burst into my room and screamed at me for being disrespectful and how I should be asleep. He then took the computer and told me I couldn't have it till after school tomorrow. 
my ex- explanations uh, rational be damned. In the morning, I felt like shit and was without a major assignment, so I didn't get ready for school. When he yelled that I was going, when he yelled that he was going, I told him, when he yelled that he was going, I think he meant when he yelled, I don't know, I told him I was not. He proceeded to break down my door, strangle me, and then smash my face into the edge of the wall. Then he told me when he got back from dropping off my sister that he would have work for me. In the mirror, my whole face was covered in blood and I had a massive gash under my eye. I called for an ambulance and got nine stitches. I dropped charges so my sister wouldn't be placed in foster care and later it got referred to as my little ambulance ride. I took the stitches out with toenail clippers at school. Man, you have been through just so, so much. Any positive experiences with these people? I believe that if my mother hadn't been constantly abused, she would have been a pretty good parent. If she was only borderline and manic, like on her good days, she could be pretty fun. Darkest thoughts. I often fantasize of just snapping and getting to let uh, out physical violence onto someone to the point of injury or death. I also want to have sex with a girl in high school or in a forceful manner. Darkest secrets. In high school, a friend's girlfriend drank too much and she stopped breathing. I was the only sober person and I resuscitated her before helping her throw up. I sat with her since everyone else was passed out and after a minute realized she was sleeping. I groped her and masturbated. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to be really sex and have lots of unattached sex. I'm not sure what that means. Um... I think he means I want to be really sexual and have lots of unattached sex. I've never enjoyed sex or my own body. I want to have lots of good sex and be validated. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would love to tell my younger sister that I know she was date-raped by my friend in high school. Uh, Just because you abused me doesn't mean I didn't realize. Uh, Just his family loved me and offered me food and a place to sleep. What, if anything, do you wish for? That I could go back to college and have a lot of sex and engage with material I love in a way that I couldn't originally because I was constantly too broke to afford food and had no car. Have you shared these things with others? I have a lot of friends, but none who would be able to process my anger or pain. They would still love me and try to, but I think the grease from that pain is too hot for anyone but myself to be spattered by. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like I pressure myself unduly for not living up to the image I have of who I should be. That, uh, and that makes me a non-participant in my life and potential. What, if anything, would you like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You don't need to stay or keep contact. If you are getting hurt so often, it's not you or circumstance, it's them. Cut off the draining aspects of your life and start fresh. Thank you for sharing all of that. And, you know, as I, as I read your survey, um, you know, you share about having this rage inside of you. Um, and 
I think it would be really important for you to process that because, you know, what people often do instead of finding a healthy way to let out their anger or pain is they try to control the world around them and use compulsive behaviors to soothe themselves or control people or, you know, essentially we try to do the opposite of being vulnerable because we think that's where safety lies and we generally wind up making things worse feeling lonelier and you know you've been wounded so deeply as anyone would by what you've experienced the covert incest by your mom the just incredible physical and emotional abuse by your father and you deserve to feel safe in the world and to feel peace and I'm not saying that it would be simple to get to that place but I I was somebody who was so hostile and didn't even know it I couldn't see that I was using it in my humor. And I didn't realize how angry I was until I started feeling less angry and began to feel peace. And walking around feeling angry and voiceless is a prison. And... You deserve, you deserve better. This is a, finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Polly Wanna Binge Eat. <laughs> Fucking great name. And she writes, I went to my first OA meeting tonight. It felt like I left my body as I stuttered out bits and pieces of my story, but it felt good to admit some of my struggles aloud for the first time. I didn't think I'd have the guts to go, as I have planned to in the past, even made it as far as the meeting door, then turned around and walked right back home. But today, as I was listening to episode 341 of the podcast, still catching up on the older episodes, toward the end you said, I hope today is the day that you ask for help. I want you to know that it was. God, I'm... You know, as somebody who has felt invisible and insignificant for large portions of my life, to read something like that and be happy, not only for you, but to feel like I have a purpose in my life, um, is just an amazing, an amazing feeling. And... What's weird is I can experience that also with the depression that I'm going through. And it's just interesting how life can be so bittersweet. And it's all ultimately, you know, just so fluid. And I guess just meeting, meeting ourselves where we're at in that moment and not judging ourselves. 
shaming ourselves for not feeling like we think we should feel or be at a place in our lives that we think we should be at. Um, I've been shaming myself about the podcast lately, feeling like I'm not putting enough work into it, feeling like I'm letting down the people who are Patreon uh, donors by not putting enough stuff uh, on there, um, feeling like I'm not reading enough surveys, like I'm letting my emails pile up too much. Um, and it's easy for me to tell you guys to stop shaming yourself, but you know, it's something often when I read your surveys, I'm reminded that I need to, to listen to my own advice, uh, sometimes as well. So what I'm saying is, is I'm a fucking hypocrite. And how do you like that? But seriously, I, uh, I want to repeat what, uh, was in that last survey, which is, I hope that today, if you've never done it, I hope today is the day that you ask for help. And, uh, just remember that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.